what is the connection between surgery and public health? This very focused um, micro level type of uh, concentration and then a societal level concentration. How can you reconcile the two things? Um, but then it became clear to me that anyone who's involved with health um, can advocate for their patients one-on-one, but can take those insights to inform the way that policy is developed to promote population health. And I was interested in trauma, uh, trauma surgery, and I, when I did training in public health, I realized that trauma is also a public health issue, uh, and injury control can be very much approached at a population level. And what better advocates could there be for injury control than people that look after injured patients every day? So just making that connection between individual patients and societal health was like a big, a big revelation for me. And that's, that's a direction that I was encouraged to pursue uh, academically. Welcome back to How It's Met, the podcast where we chat with people shaping the future of healthcare and health tech. On this podcast, we share the secrets, stories, and skills of the amazing founders, clinicians, investigators, engineers, and occasionally an Olympic athlete who, got, who went into venture capital. This time around, we're joined by Dr. Murad Hamid. Murad is a trauma surgeon intensivist at Vancouver General Hospital, an assistant professor of surgery at UBC, division head of general surgery at UBC, and the founder and chief medical officer of T6 Health Systems. Murad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jeff. Thank you. And how about you? I I, I was telling you that I just got off a four-hour flight and uh, drove home and then had another meeting. So I am tired and my cat is yelling at me from the bathroom, but that's okay. I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. You look good. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I dug back way into the previous podcasts and uh, work that you've done, the interviews that you've done. And uh, I, I have a pointed question here for you to kind of you know, lead into your own retelling of your origin story. Um, who's your biggest role model and how did his cabbage inspire your origin story? Uh, my, my biggest role model is my aunt, uh, ah. my mother's eldest sister. Uh, there, she was, there are four sisters growing up in India uh, around the time of India's independence. And um, their father was a quite famous education scholar um, who was also a freedom fighter. Um, a fighter for India's independence. And um, he raised his daughters with this a reverence for the truth, um, for humanism, for service. Um, he himself became the Secretary of Education for India, and she became a philosopher and a sociologist. And she always taught us to um, have big ideals and um, to work hard uh, to realize them. And really to pursue the truth and uh, to try to make the world better. She was, she was, uh, by far and away my biggest influence, even before, um, going into medicine. That's fair enough. And it seems like your work, uh, since your childhood has really fallen along that path. Um, what specifically drove you towards medicine if your childhood was influenced by people with such big ideals and you wanted to be the NFL athlete for? Uh, it was actually CFL. Um, CFL, okay, okay. Just to, just to be, uh, but uh, yeah, thanks, Jeff. That's a great question. Uh, well, my aunt was definitely my, my role model and guide. Um, but I think I also 
had this urge to um, be of service, um, to try to do something that would benefit people. And also, I just had this joy for learning about biology, um, for science. And I think that medicine seemed like a natural thing that combines service and, you know, this reverence or joy about science. Yeah, that's fair enough. And I mean, part of it is, part of the, the next question that follows really is the distinction between medicine and surgery. You chose to go into surgery. Why go down that specific path? Yeah, I started one, I started out, um, when I was very young thinking that I would be a cardiac surgeon. Um, I learned about it because my father um, had congestive heart failure. And so I grew up thinking that that would be an amazing, uh, way to serve as to be a, to be a cardiac surgeon. And then when I got into medical school, my, by then my, my focus became, um, more on the medical side. So I actually wanted to be an internist. And um, for the first two or three years of medical school, I was kind of preparing for life in internal medicine. And then my second last rotation in medical school was general surgery. And I approached that with a lot of trepidation. You know, I didn't think that I could do the hours. Um, I didn't know if I could keep up with the pace. I didn't know if I could tolerate some of the harsh training environment that I heard about. But I met Two more of my biggest role models, my attending surgeon, um, Dr. Murr Blaskin, uh, welcomed me, treated me as a member of his team, and just opened up like the incredible wonders of surgery to me. And my, my chief resident, Grant O'Keefe, who is still a friend today, um, was just brilliant. Um, he was an unconventional thinker and a technically gifted surgeon. And he wanted to uh, go into trauma surgery, uh, wanted to subspecialize in trauma surgery. And actually, I kind of followed him. So I was, it was an impressionable age. And when I got to that rotation, I just, I couldn't believe how fun it was, how fulfilling it was, how fast paced and how welcoming it was and how amazing it was to be part of a team and part of a culture that was dedicated to the same, uh, same things that I cared about. So. I switched really from internal medicine to general surgery at that moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, general surgery, like all medicine, is quite uh, detail-focused, and perhaps during the actual surgery itself, even more so because you have to be able to carry out the intricate details of the surgery with precision in order to get to the goal that you want for the patient's benefit without doing harm. So how did that line of thinking and how did that line of training clash or, I guess, go along with the ideals that you were raised with that have since influenced much of your, I guess, other work? Man, Jeff, these are really, really good questions. Um, thank you for that one. So, uh, yeah, um, very perceptive. So obviously general surgery deals with sort of almost micro level precision. You have to be precise. You have to be technical. And you have to make good decisions on behalf of your patients. It's a very intense one-on-one -on -one type of um, existence. And, um, but I, I realized that general surgeons are also leaders. They lead their teams in the operating room. They often, because of their training and decision-making ability, they, they become leaders within their hospitals. Um, but it still d didn't connect as broadly with society as I, 
as I hoped. And I, I was looking for a way to reconcile this. And so early on in my training, I discovered that some surgeons uh, could do training in public health. And uh, in particular, um, one of my uh, family friends did a, uh, she was a breast a surgical oncologist and did a master's degree in public health. And I just thought that's so intriguing. Like, what is the connection between surgery and public health? This very focused um, micro level type of uh, concentration and then a societal level concentration. How could you reconcile the two things? Um, but then it became clear to me that anyone who's involved with health um, can advocate for their patients one-on-one, but can take those insights to inform the way that policy is developed to promote population health. And I was interested in trauma, uh, trauma surgery. And I, when I did training in public health, I realized that trauma is also a public health issue. Uh, and injury control can be very much approached at a population level. And what better advocates could there be for injury control than people that look after injured patients every day? So just making that connection between individual patients and societal health was like a big, a big revelation for me. And that's, that's a direction that I was encouraged to pursue uh, academically. In developing that connection between the patient level practice of trauma surgery and the epidemiological thinking of how to prevent trauma or even how to best prepare systems to handle trauma, um, did you ever have any struggles in terms of making the switch or was there a certain way of thinking that helped you make that switch in perspective more easily? Um, I had a, when I was um, in my um, first class, first day of um, uh, my MPH, my master's in public health, um, I had a professor who, who was um, a physician, an emergency physician. Um, and uh, she also had um, sort of a high-level health policy position in, in Massachusetts. And um, she said that as an emergency physician, she would um, sew up people's lacerations, she would treat their gunshot wounds, and then she would discharge them right back into the communities that they came from, right back to the risks that they would face. And sometimes she would see the same patient back in the same shift. And she just wanted to treat that at a deeper level, like she wanted to address that revolving door. Um, she wanted to address the broader traumas that affected and placed that patient at risk and made them vulnerable. So it's a very, it's a, like the, the individual patient focus and the population level focus is very synergistic. Like they, they inform each other and they, they collectively add up to greater than some of their parts. So it's, it's actually, um, you know, one, one area of interest kind of inspires the other in a way. Mm-hmm. I, I share, I, I can empathize with that story that your instructor told because in my own shifts, I've seen patients come back for the same presentations. I think the one that's most salient in most Canadians' mind is the opioid overdose crisis that's, that's ongoing throughout Canada right now. Um, and it can be so easy to get overwhelmed by the day-to-day practice in terms of, you know, managing things, uh, on a patient level and then going back home feeling emotionally and morally distraught and then trying to find some way to do things. Do you think that the MPH was the best way that you could have prepared yourself 
to manage these problems on a systems level? Or thinking back now, would you have taken a different path? For me, I think it was the, still the best thing. It was it was a way, it really opened up, opened my eyes to what's possible. In the program that I was in at Harvard, I I got to learn from people who really thought that they could change the world and actually were changing the world. And I could see that their studies were impacting policy and population health. And it really gave me the, the sort of faith that... Um, that ideas matter, uh, and that that big big thinking and um, and ambition uh, can help to change uh, to make a change. And so for me, that the MPH really complemented my clinical training. It just broadened my perspective a lot. Um, sometimes I think that uh, over my career, I've I've learned about other fields, like for example, like organizational psychology, um, how teams work together, how they how they um, uh, how they integrate, um, how they create situation awareness, how they work toward a common purpose. That sometimes I think that might have been a cool thing to focus on. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, in the innovation space, I've gotten more interested in lately. Uh, sometimes I wonder if, um, uh, design, uh, design thinking that, that, that didn't exist when I was training, but, um, how do people, uh, incorporate design thinking into systems change. That seemed pretty good. But for me, um, I'm happy with the master's in public health and, and the pathways that that's opened up for me. Mm-hmm. Speaking just, of, well, sorry, oh, go ahead. Boy, go ahead. Saying like a, you know, taking that thought about clinical surgery and public health, like that synergy, like a little bit further. One of my friends is, um, a trauma surgeon and he is, the founding um, director of the uh, trauma program at the University of Chicago. Um, so I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the south side of Chicago, which is like a hot spot for gun violence, uh, until recently did not have a trauma center. And th- it was it was called actually a trauma desert, um, meaning that patients who were in that war zone had to go almost outside of their own region to get trauma care. And... Um, they, they, the reason they didn't have a trauma, uh, center is because the University of Chicago thought that it, they would lose money on, on opening a facility like that. So it was actually the community, the Southside Chicago community that lobbied to open a trauma center. And after a lot of pressure, social pressure, political pressure, they opened this trauma center. And this friend of mine, Salwin Rogers, he became, he was recruited to be their first trauma medical director. And, he immediately also started uh, this community engagement process and he, he's also public health trained, but he thought that the only way that a trauma center could be successful is if it breaks down its walls and engages with the community. And he actually became their director of community engagement as well. And so he went to churches and community centers and schools and tried to understand what the social determinants of injury risk were because he felt in, a, in that way, trauma center could be more responsive and more adaptive and could actually prevent some of the traumas that actually lead to the actual physical trauma. Um, so I think that that's kind of like a natural extension of this way of thinking of combining clinical medicine with public health. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really insightful story. 
as to what the competing interests in systems are and the innovations and investigations that need to happen in order to improve patient and community outcome. Kind of related to the next question, which I wanted to ask, uh, which was your previous mention in a previous podcast about the three waves of safety and practice in general surgery. Um, can you explain this concept? I found it super interesting because uh, there are different levels of innovation that you had mentioned that have allowed general surgery to become what it is today and in the future to become what it will be. I just uh, by chance came across um, a paper written in the Harvard Business Review by a surgeon called Amir Gaffari, um, who at the time was a professor of surgery at the University of Michigan. And um, by the way, it's so interesting. I I cold emailed Dr. Gaffari and asked him if he would like to come to Vancouver as a visiting professor. And he responded and he said yes. And he came in November and headlined a symposium that we ran called Surgical Systems Redesign. Um, and uh, he turned out to be an amazing person and become a good friend. Um, but uh, yeah, so what, what, uh, what Dr. Gaffari said is that the history of um, innovation in surgery has three waves, uh, waves of innovation in surgery. And so what he does is he, he draws a graph and on the x-axis of the graph is time. On the y-axis is patient mortality. And he, it's a conceptual graph. And what he shows is that he shows three, uh, curves, uh, d- declining curves that hit a inflection point decline again. And then the third curve that hits a inflection point declines again. And basically what he says is with each innovation, we drop mortality in surgery, but eventually the curve starts to level off. And then you have the next innovation and it drops mortality again, but eventually you have some diminishing returns and the curve levels off. And then the third innovation drops mortality again when the curve levels off. But it's fun to, to, to hear what the curves are, what the curves represent. So the first curve is technology, the introduction of technology in surgery drops mortality. Things like laparoscopic surgery or in trauma, we have damage control surgery. Uh, these things uh, have an impact on mortality, but eventually that Im- impact starts to level off as, as technology is adopted. The next curve is standardization. As we standardize healthcare, meaning that we do it the same way every time, we reduce variability at each step, mortality drops again. And that means that the knowledge that we have of surgery begins to permeate, permeate, you know, all hospitals and all surgical services. And so that standardization kind of levels the playing field between services. It creates a uniform excellence. But eventually standardization, the benefits of standardization also level off because all patients are not the same. And, sta- you know, so there's, the, you know, there's kind of a limit to how standardization can eventually you'll have to tailor care to individual patients. And um, the third uh, uh, wave of innovation uh, is the wave that we're currently at the field, that we're at the cusp of. Um, and that that wave is um, uh, creating uh, systems that are complex, adaptive, that learn, um, that emphasize the culture of care, that em- emphasize individualization of patient care. Um, and uh, that you could call that wave the wave of learning health systems. These are systems that begin to um, analyze data, uh, 
collect data, analyze it in detail, visualize data, uh, and report it, and learn from every patient that comes through the system. Um, so, so that's sort of the, the interesting point where we find ourselves now is where we have, we know how to integrate technology, we know how to standardize, but can we function now as complex adaptive systems that can bring the right um, therapies to patients, you know, in the right, at the right time? Healthcare, surgical care has become more complex with time and we, we can achieve a lot more. But th- I think the key is, can we integrate multidisciplinary inputs for patients to match the complexity that they present with to achieve great outcome? Mm-hmm. So if I'm to summarize what you, what you said there, the first way of innovation representing benefits in mortality and morbidity from improved uh, equipment or technology. The second wave, uh, represented standardization. So making sure that you're able to minimize variability in certain procedures, uh, or certain pathways of care to, to minimize, uh, morbidity and mor- mortality from where you can within the system. But the next, uh, combined kind of the benefits of the previous waves, as well as the massive influx of data that we're able to gather today in order to uh, I guess create what you call learning health systems. So you, you've mentioned some examples of innovations and we've talked about or mentioned some in that previous little, I guess, um, summary. But what are some examples of innovations, uh, that help create learning health systems now? Yeah, I think that, uh, so. If you, if you visualize a learning health system as a cycle, like a, uh, improvement cycle, and, um, it's a circle. So on one half of the circle is data input. So you, we're good at kind of, we can now collect data with electronic health records, with registries, with patient reported data, increasingly now with wearables and all that. We have this now ability to create a date, these data rich environments around patients. But then the question is, what do you do with that data? Like, how do the, how do you, the, the, the other side of that cycle is the action side, side. So one is the, the learning side and one is the action side. And that there's this iterative process of continued data acquisition and analysis and continued systems change. So how do we collect data at high enough resolution, analyze it, report it, that it can actually provide meaningful insights to improve care? And data can be like, as I mentioned, any of the things that, that we talked about, it can be in hospital data. It could be process data. It could be outcomes data. It could be patient reported data. It could be healthcare provider reported data. It could be data on cost. It could even be da- data on planetary impact of healthcare. So all of these data streams coming in. The problem, I think, where health systems are, we, we're not quite good at integrating that data into meaningful action. And so that's where we are now. And the question you asked is, do we have good examples of how this sort of new learning health systems approach actually improves care? Um, we've started to do this at our hospital, Vancouver General Hospital, where we've created dashboards for uh, all of our services. And now our services can respond to um, to their dashboards. And we've seen in some of our units, like our liver transplant unit, We've actually seen improvements in patient outcomes, uh, because they're starting to measure and respond and, and target sort of 
micro interventions uh, to to start to try to optimize their dashboards. Um, so we're beginning to see where it's it's beginning to happen, but we're still early days. That's super cool. I mean, part of it is be- being able to figure out uh, how you can collect all that data. But I think the second half of it is being able to suss out which data points are relevant to gather because there's so much information to gather, but not all of it may truly be directly relevant to outcomes at hand. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.